0: All right. Well, we are back to Luke 9. Imagine that. Um, Verses 37 through 45. Imagine that. Uh, We just can't seem to get away from here. I've been emailing uh, Brad Kelly, who's working in Japan, and uh, he said that he just listened to Seek Understanding, Not Miracles, Part 27, (laughs) um, which was only a small bit of hyperbole. And uh, I'm enough of an imp that I thought, you know, I could just keep preaching on that same verse, so when he comes back 7 weeks later, I'll still be on the same verse we were on when he left. Um but we're we're moving on um from that that verse. Anyways, uh we're in Luke 9:37 through 45 and we're going to actually finish up this section this morning unless the rapture happens, which is fine with me. As you can see, Christmas is upon us, and there are decorations here. We're starting to sing a little Christmas songs, and I'm sure some of you are decorating and just kind of getting ready, getting invitations, Christmas cards, the um, perpetual Christmas letters, things like that are coming in the mail. And for those of you with children, especially young children, Christmas can be very fun. And if they're really young, about a year old, it can be very funny. Uh, as well as fun. Uh, you know, the, the all the relatives are kind of glad, grandma, grandpa, aunts, and uncles, and uh, are glad that, you know, your child is celebrating their first Christmas, and so they just get a ton of presents. You know, you've got your few, and they've got a mountain. And uh, you decide on Christmas morning or whatever to open up the presents, and so you help your young one open up the present, and they love the wrapper. They could care less about the present. They could care less about the other presents. They just want to chew on the wrapper. And uh, that's fine with them. That's fine with them. Uh, But, you know, the problem is, is they don't know the difference between the trash and the present. And, you know, we're going to encounter the same kind of thing in in our text today. And this morning as we look at Luke 9, I I, uh, I just have to give you some context. I know I don't want to just torment you with this because we've gone over it many times. But it's uh, just so important to remind yourself of the flow of what's happening in the passage. And uh, maybe some here weren't here before. And so let me just remind you of what the context is talking about. Luke chapter nine towards the end is talking about Jesus's ministry, the end of what is called his Galilean ministry. He's been ministering in and around the sea of Galilee or lake actually of Galilee, the lake of Gennesaret. And, um, he is there ministering and doing preaching, teaching, performing miracles Raising the dead, calming the sea, things like that. And uh, Luke has decided in this last portion of chapter 9 to include multiple failures that the disciples had. And apparently he wants us to know that even though these men have had three years of concentrated training with Jesus, they're still messed up. They still have a lot of problems in their lives, and they aren't getting things right. Jesus takes them up on the Mount of Transfiguration to pray. They fall asleep. They finally wake up, you know, when half the show's over. They get to see Jesus in his kingdom glory. They get to see Elijah and Moses. Uh, they hear the voice of God, but they totally miss the whole point of being up there. They, they leave thinking, what was that for? Um, they just don't know. Our text follows on the heels of this. Jesus is coming down the mountain with Peter, James, and John, who are up there with him. The nine were left behind. And while the nine are left behind, a father approaches the nine and says, I have a demon-possessed boy, could you heal him? They try and they can't. This then gives an occasion for the scribes and Pharisees, or it mentions the scribes, to scoff at and get in an argument with him saying, I told you so, Jesus isn't the one, you don't have the power, you know, um, it just gives them opportunity to blaspheme God. And in addition to this, there is this huge multitude, a huge multitude, maybe 20,000 people. We don't know, it doesn't give the numbers, but Jesus is at the pinnacle of his popularity, and other times there have been crowds of 15,000. So it's very likely that the, they're even bigger than that. This huge throng of people. And what is interesting is that the nine who are left behind are seeking Jesus. The father of the demon possessed boy is seeking Jesus. The scribes are seeking Jesus to argue with him, and the crowds are seeking Jesus. But they're all seeking Jesus for the wrong reason. Every one of them. Every one of them. And so that is kind of the context of our passage. They're all seeking Jesus for their own selfish reasons. But no one understands that God incarnate, the Messiah of Israel, is standing in front of them. And so that huge deal... They're missing. Instead, they want to argue. They want miracles. They want whatever. So that is what's happening. And so follow along as I read Luke 9, 37 through 45. On the next day, when they came down from a mountain, the large crowd met him. And a man from the crowd shouted, saying, Teacher, I beg you to look at my son, for he is my only boy. And a spirit seizes him and suddenly screams. And it throws him into a convulsion with foaming at the mouth And only with difficulty does it leave him mauling him as it leaves. I begged your disciples to cast it out and they could not. And Jesus answered and said, you unbelieving and perverted generation. How long shall I be with you and put up with you? Bring your son here. And while he was still approaching, the demon slammed him to the ground, threw him into a convulsion. But Jesus rebuked the unclean spirit and healed the boy and gave him back to his father. And they were all amazed at the greatness of God. But while everyone was marveling at all that he was doing, he said to the disciples, let these words sink into your ears. The son of man is going to be delivered into the hands of men. But they did not understand this statement. And it was concealed from them so that they would not perceive it. And they were afraid to ask him about this statement. Now from this portion of Luke, We're talking about four hindrances to spiritual vitality, four things that you need to make sure aren't part of your life if you're going to have a thriving walk with the Lord. And we've looked at the first one so far, don't be unbelieving. And we see this in verse 41 where Jesus describes them as an unbelieving and perverted generation. Perverted uh, just as a synonym for sin. An unbelieving and sinful generation. Unbelief is a refusal to believe God, to trust God, to rely upon God, to live according to God's word. It's unbelief. And unbelief then gives birth to sin. In verse 41, Jesus asked two questions. How long shall I be with you and put up with you? These questions show Jesus' disfavor or human exasperation, not in a sinful way, but his patience seems to be at an end. How long shall I put up with you? And the reason was Jesus was angry was that his disciples, who should have known better, and the father of the demon-possessed boy, and the crowds were all unbelieving to a degree. Some to a complete degree. They were not willing to believe in Jesus. And yet they were asking for blessing. And God does not like to bless those who do not believe in him. You know, God bless America when the terrorists attack. But then as soon as that goes away, you go back to living for self and Satan. God doesn't like that. And we noted that God does not like to bless those who are living in unbelief and that he really has to put up with them, both believers and unbelievers. And we saw this before. We noted that God is not indifferent to sin. Christ is not indifferent to sin. He is not only loving and he's not only out there just, you know, tolerating sin and letting us sin all we want and that, you know, he's not going to come back and judge the living and the dead. He's just going to keep putting up with it. No, that is false. And we said, we got a little discussion of the character and nature of Christ and learned that a lot of people get their view of Jesus solely from the gospels where we see Jesus in his humility. And so Jesus is pictured in the Gospels in a very different way than he was before the Gospels and after the Gospels. Now he is the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords, the judge of the living and the dead. That is who he is now and forevermore will be. He is not passive and he is not allowing men to attack him and crucify him and Blaspheme him forever. He will judge sinners. Hence, we must not derive perceptions of Jesus only from the picture of him in humility. So that was kind of what we looked at so far under point one. Now we come to point two. Don't seek miracles without seeking understanding. There is a large crowd present. The father of the demon possessed boy shouts out, please look at my son. He's demon possessed. I asked your disciples. They couldn't do it. Jesus then condemns the whole generation. You unbelieving and perverted generation. How long shall I be with you? How long shall I put up with you? And then he says this at the end of verse 41. Look there where Jesus says, bring your son here. And while he was still approaching, the demon slammed to the ground and threw him into convulsion. Everyone is watching, the demon realizes his prize is going to be taken away, and so he throws the boy to the ground. Mark adds in Mark 9, 20, that the boy began rolling around the ground and foaming at the mouth. The demon, seeing that his prize is going to be taken away from him, tries to kill the boy, do whatever he can to just destroy the, the, the young man. Mark adds quite a bit of additional information. It tells us that Jesus then asked the father how long has this been happening to him. And he said from childhood. And it is often thrown into both the fire and the water to destroy him. And here we learn two things. One, that the demon had entered this boy at childhood. And two, that the demon had constantly tried to kill the boy. And we also see here the malice and hatred that demons have for christ this demon is doing what jesus wants we'll see that in a second when jesus says get out the demon's going to obey completely but the demon doesn't like it yes the demon has to submit to christ but the demon hates christ nonetheless also notice that when Jesus gives the demon the command, the demon obeys, compelled by God's divine will. There is this false perception that we have, mostly from Hollywood and the media, that, you know, it's kind of God's here and Satan's here. and They're kind of equal powers and they're battling it out, you know, tooth and nail, hammer and tongue, trying to gain supremacy over one another. Not even close. Satan is like an amoeba that has decided to attack and snuff out the sun. It's not even a possibility. There's not even a comparison. God is infinite in power and might. Satan is just this infinitesimal creature that he has created compared to us. Yes, he's powerful compared to God. He's dust. God could just speak him out of existence. There is no balance of power. There is an all-sovereign God who, for his own good purposes, has allowed Satan to continue for a time. Look at the middle of verse 42. But Jesus rebuked the unclean spirit and healed the boy and gave him back to his father. And we've already seen Jesus' power over demons in chapter 4 and chapter 8 here again. We've gone over demon possession in detail, but by way of reminder, just note that he healed the boy at once. There was no holy water, no special prayer, no praying a hedge about the boy, no staging, no incantation, just a rebuke. And the boy was healed at once. Mark 9, 25 through 27 says, when Jesus saw The crowd was rapidly gathering. He rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, You deaf and mute spirit, I command you to come out of him and do not enter him again. And after crying out and throwing him into terrible convulsions, it came out, the boy became so much like a corpse, that most of them said, He's dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and raised him, and he got up. The contrast was so great from this this thrashing about that this demon was doing this convulsion, this foaming of the mouth and rolling on the ground. And I mean, it just must have been hideous in the whole. This huge crowd is gathered around, you know, seeing the, the show. And Jesus rebukes the demon and it comes out and the boy is just perfectly still. And the contrast is so great that people say he's dead. He killed him. And Jesus goes over and gets him up. And you know what, sad to say, this is exactly what the crowd was looking for. They love this stuff. I mean, wouldn't you like to see something like this? A miracle? That, that's why they were there. That is exactly why they were there. It was fascinating. You know, this would make just premium headlines on the gossip tabloids. You know, traveling carpenter casts out demon with a word in front of 20,000. They, they just loved it. And you could just hear the people in the crowd, a mother saying, son, see, I told you. The rumors are true. It happened just like we heard. And there's a guy there going to a friend. I told you this is the same thing he did in Capernaum. And let's see if he does another one. In Capernaum, he did this over and over again. I kid you not. And they're all going, Cool. And there's a scribe who's sitting in the back on, yeah, but he's doing it by the power of Satan. Look at verse 43 where we read, and they were all amazed at the greatness of God. The word amazed might be translated shocked or awestruck or gripped with fear. The, the word literally means to be struck with a blow. The demonstration of God's power was so great they were just struck with a blow. Whoa. It was so incredible to see this happen—to see Jesus walk up to this boy foaming and thrashing about while everybody's crowd around and just rebuke and just heal. And the crowd realized that God is the one who does the miracles. That God must have gave this Jesus guy this power, but they were missing something. They were missing something. They were actually missing the thing. They were missing the purpose of the miracle. They didn't understand who Jesus was or what he came to do. They liked Jesus because he was a good show. He was an instant cure. He was fun to watch. But they missed the big deal. And we've already learned that God doesn't do miracles just to keep us healthy and happy and fascinated. That is not the purpose of miracles. Miracles are called sign gifts for a reason. It's because they're signs. The miracle is not the big deal. What the miracle points to is the big deal. You're driving to Yosemite National Park. You've never been there. You're on your way there. And you're following some people who've been there lots of times and you've seen pictures of the park and you know it's going to be great and you're driving after several hours you get to the first sign that says you know Yosemite Park you know 120 miles and you see your friends up ahead pull over off the side of the road by the sign so you pull over too because you're following them and they hop out of their car and they go we're here (laughs) oh it's wonderful Mabel, get the camera. And they start taking pictures of the sign. And they're all excited. Get out the tent. I mean, what would you be thinking? Hey, this isn't the park. This is the sign that tells us how to get to the park. This isn't the big deal. The park's the big deal. And this is exactly what is happening in our text. The crowd's amazed. Wow. Did you see that sign? <laughs> and they're all excited about it. They're missing the big deal. God in human flesh is standing in front of them. The Messiah is in front of them and they don't even realize it. Turn over to Matthew chapter 12. Matthew chapter 12. The Pharisees were all bent out of shape in the context here because Jesus and his disciples walked through a field, picked some heads of grain, rolled it and ate it, which was lawful to do even on the Sabbath. They had forgotten that. They're all bent out of shape. Jesus gives an example of David who feeds his men with the show bread, which it was unlawful for David to eat. He also gives another example that the priests serve in the temple on the Sabbath and do work in the temple. And then he says this in verse 6. Something greater than the temple is here. Now, to make a statement like that to the Jews back then, that was huge. The temple was everything. You know, Solomon um, built the first one, and then it kind of... You know, it was, it was destroyed and pilfered over the years and been burnt down by Nebuchadnezzar. And then it was rebuilt and then it was really rebuilt over many years by Herod the Great. And so at this point, it was magnificent. And Jesus says something greater than the temple is here. And look at verse 38 of chapter 12, Matthew. Where we read, then some of the scribes and Pharisees said to him, teacher, we want to see a sign from you. See, this is what the Jews are into. Remember, Paul says that in Corinthians 2, Jews ask for a sign. They want to see a sign. We want to see a sign. But he answered and said to them, an evil, adulterous generation craves for a sign. So they're looking for a sign. But then notice what Jesus says. What are they going to get? Verse 39, and yet no sign will be given them but the sign of Jonah the prophet. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the sea monster, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Of course, they aren't going to get this sign for a little while, the death and resurrection of Christ, but they are totally confused. Like, what? Verse 41, the men of Nineveh will stand up in this generation at the judgment and will condemn it because they repented at the preaching of Jonah. Behold, something greater than Jonah is here. Jonah, of course, being one man who led the entire city of Nineveh to repentance was God's instrument. One guy, mass revival, something greater than Jonah is here. Look at verse 42. The queen of the south, this is the queen of Sheba who came to see Solomon and his wisdom. The queen of the south will rise up with this generation at judgment and will condemn it. Because she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon, of course, who was the wisest man who ever lived. And behold, something greater than Solomon is here. Notice what's happening here. Jesus is doing miracles. Jesus is telling them about great things and says, the temple... Impressive, something better than the temple. Jonah, incredible prophet, something greater than Jonah. Solomon, super wise, super rich, something greater. Who's richer than Solomon? I mean, what, what single prophet has led that many people to the Lord in one fell swoop? What structure in Israel was greater than the temple? There wasn't any. Those were all the pinnacle examples. And Jesus says, something greater than, something greater than, something greater than. Why? Because they were all excited about the wrapping. They were excited about the sign pointing to the park, but they were missing the park. They just weren't getting it. Jay Vernon McGee in his down-to-earth way said, it's like the person who finds a large sack of money in their front yard, dumps out the money, and gets excited about the sack. <laughs> and that's how it is. That's how it is in churches today, especially in charismatic churches, who are all psyched about the sign, but they don't get what the sign is for. Signs have a purpose, and it's not just to make us happy and healthy and excited and entertained. Signs point to something, and what they point to is Jesus. Jesus. But many are not satisfied with Jesus. They want an experience. They want a feeling. They want a sign. They want a miracle. They want a dream. They want a vision or epiphany or whatever. They're looking for some sort of religious zap to, yeah. But man, you know, once you get to the park and you see Half Dome and you see those incredible waterfalls, are you thinking, man, I wish I could be back there by that first sign? That... <laughs> Is that what you're thinking? Somebody gives you an incredible present, and go, wow, that rapper was great. <laughs> yeah, that sack that money was in, look at it the cotton is so coarse and listen once the new testament was complete then the purpose of the sign gifts came to an end because now we have the word of god and we've looked at this over and over again i'm not even going to go there but in second peter chapter one it says in verses 16 through 18 peter's talking about and we were high witnesses of his majesty when we went up to the mountain and we heard that utterance you know the voice of god they saw moses and elijah and jesus transformed in his glory and after they get all of that they are just amazed. They're amazed. And then Peter says, "But we have the more sure word of God to which you do well to pay attention." More sure than what? Than the greatest experience that Peter ever had. You see, you can you can have an experience. You know, you can read a book or see some movie or whatever, and it impacts you. But the more times it just kind of wears off, you it's kind of like, okay, it's boring now, I've seen it 50 times. But you get the Word of God in you. The Word of God is energized by the Holy Spirit of God, God Almighty. And the Holy Spirit then makes the Word of God living and active, can not only save you, but transform you into the image of Christ and make eternal changes. That's why the author of Hebrews says it is living, it is active, it is sharper than any double-edged sword, it is piercing and able to judge, it is the hammer that shatters rock and the fire that consumes. And that is why the word of God is more sure than experiences. Experiences are fine, but they point to something, or they need to point, if they're from God, they point to something. Those sign gifts, those miracles, they point to Jesus and once you have jesus then who cares about the rapper turn over to luke chapter 10 verse 17 this this illustrates this perfectly you know we often pray for miracles we ask god maybe to save somebody or heal somebody or you know fix some terrible situation in somebody's life and this is fine And sometimes God does the thing we want. You know, He does it, and we're just like, oh, praise God. It is so cool. God is so good. And we're blessing God and we're praising God as He gave us what we hoped He would, or somebody else what we hoped He'd give them. You know, somebody gets saved or whatever. And this is like way cool. But in this context here in Luke 10 17 through 20, Jesus. Gave the 70 disciples power to cast out demons and heal the sick, just like he previously did the 12. So he first did the 12 and now he does this bigger group. The 70, verse 17 says, returned with joy saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. And he said to them, I was watching Satan fall from heaven like lightning. Behold, I've given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy and nothing will injure you. Basically, Jesus is saying this, man, I have covered you with heavenly Kevlar. You you are bulletproof. But then notice what he says in verse 20. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this. When I give you a gift, when I give you a miraculous gift, and when you yourself are able to do miracles, don't rejoice in this. Really? Yeah. But rejoice that your names are recorded in heaven. That is the big deal. Do you see that? That is the big deal. Not miraculous gifts, not power over demons, but being saved from hellfire. That is the big deal. And don't miss the purpose of signs and wonders and get all excited about the present, the rapture, the rapper, the sign. The rapture is one too. But you know what? When you get to heaven, you aren't going to be all excited that you got raptured. You're going to be excited you're in heaven with Jesus. So don't seek miracles and miss the understanding. That's what's going on in the text. Thirdly, don't be hard-hearted to the truth. Look at verse 43. But while everyone was marveling at all that he was doing, he said to his disciples, let these words sink into your ears. And Jesus' statement here is not to the whole crowd, it's to the disciples. And it's emphatic, which means let, let these words sink into your ears each individually. I mean, he wants them to know that I want you to understand this. Get, get this in the vernacular through your thick, bony heads. I want you to understand this. I want you to know this. And look at the middle of verse verse 43, for the Son of Man is going to be delivered in the hands of men. That's what he wanted them to know. And if you look at the parallel text in Matthew and Mark, you will see that Jesus also said, because I'm going to Jerusalem to die and be raised up on the third day. The same thing he said in verse 22, the same thing he alludes to in verse 31. So three times in a very near proximity, he keeps telling them, I'm gonna die, I'm gonna die, I'm gonna die. And be raised up on the third day. It's gonna happen in Jerusalem. I'm gonna be delivered in the hands of men. Now, Jesus wants them to know his death is imminent. And you have to ask yourself why. Well, I think the reason he's doing this is because listen, guys, get your act together. I am going to die. And so it's time to get with it, you know, and start doing what you've been learning. However, look at verse 45, but they did not understand this statement. Matthew adds in Matthew 17, 23, that they were deeply grieved, but did not understand this statement. And this is very interesting that Matthew added that they were grieved. Why were they grieved if they didn't understand it? I asked myself that. Sometimes I find things in here that I think, man, this is so hard. I'm not mentioning it from the pulpit. Um... (laughs) I guess I can't figure it out. Uh, I never tell you that stuff, but here, here is an interesting one. They're deeply grieved, but they didn't understand. Well, obviously, they had to be grieved because they understood that Jesus was talking about his death. So they understood that part. Jesus is telling us he's going to die. The question is, they did not understand the statement, so then what does that leave? What, what did they not understand? Well, I thought about this for a while. And again, I'm just making educated guess. This may be totally wrong. But here are some things which, when you look through the Gospels, you see they didn't quite understand or understand at all until later. One is, is that the Messiah had to die. They didn't, they didn't understand that. They thought the Messiah would come, conquer Rome, set up his kingdom. So being convinced Jesus is the Messiah, and now Jesus is telling about his death, just doesn't seem to compute with them. Secondly... That he needed to die to make atonement for sins. They understood the sacrificial system. They understood the purpose of the sacrificial system. But what they didn't understand is, is you can't redeem a sinful human with an animal. You need a perfect human to redeem a sinful human. So you need a perfect human sacrifice. And the Messiah was the only candidate. Third, they didn't seem to understand... How Jesus now at the height of popularity up north in Galilee with all these people who love him with all this power to do all kinds of miracles could ever end up in Jerusalem dead. It just didn't seem right. I mean, who would mess with him? He, he raised the dead. He calmed the sea. And the guy's got some power. And so it just doesn't seem likely that somebody's going to kill Jesus because Jesus is the wielder of God's power and they know this. So it seems that when it says they were grieved, maybe they understood that Jesus is saying I'm going to die and they're thinking, ah, that's not good, but they didn't understand it because how could he die? He's the Messiah and he's up here and we all like him. And he does miracles. So, how could we, how could he be dead? They just didn't understand that. And so, that's their guesses. I don't know. But one thing is obvious part of their problem is unbelief. We've already established this before. They were of little faith, they weren't trusting God, they were doing things in the power of their own flesh or trying to and failing. And whenever you have unbelief in your life, you get blinded you get blinded proud selfish people are usually cu- clueless that they're proud selfish people you know the pride is that disease that everyone sees but the person who has it and you just don't quite understand that you're blind that is why when jesus um talks to the religious leaders i mean they're religious leaders and they have studied the scriptures You know, and they have been in the temple and they've been trained by the great rabbis. And here's this carpenter from Nazareth trying to tell them about the word of God. And they didn't want to learn from Jesus. And their pride blinded them. And that's why Jesus refers to them as blind guides, the blinds and you blind and you hypocrite. He constantly talks about them as being blind because their sin blinded them from the truth. Now, if you look at the middle of verse 45, we read, and it was concealed from them so that they would not perceive it. And this takes it to a whole different level. Yes, I think partially it was their fault being unbelieving and not trusting God and not praying and being selfish, having selfish motives. But here we learn that the truth was concealed from them so that they would not perceive it. Now, there's really only about two candidates that this could fall into. One would be Satan, who would blind all of them from the truth so that they couldn't perceive it. But that is an unlikely candidate. It is true that Satan, we know from Paul, blinds the minds of unbelievers so that they don't understand the light of the gospel so as to be saved. But Jesus is talking to his disciples now. So the only other candidate is God. But this is interesting because if Jesus is God in human flesh and Jesus is there to do the father's will, then why is Jesus trying to get them to understand and God, the father keeping them from understanding? That is a dilemma, but you know what? It's not any different than a lot of times we see in the scriptures. Just give you one example. God tells Moses, Moses, I want you to go tell Pharaoh, "Let my people go, and so God sends Moses, Moses tells Pharaoh, and then God hardens pharaoh 's heart, so he won 't let him go why well exodus nine seventeen tells us why, but indeed, for this reason, I have allowed you to remain. In order to show you my power, in order to proclaim my name through the whole, through all the earth. And here he's talking to Pharaoh through Moses and just saying, hey, listen, the only reason you are existing and the only reason I haven't wiped you out and cut off you and all your people from the face of the earth is I want to show you how bad I am. And I want my power and my name to be proclaimed through the whole earth. So God has a purpose. God has a purpose sometimes in telling one person to do one thing and another person to do another thing, which apparently in our mind contradicts, but no, he wants this to happen or to bring about some other result. Now, we look at this and this whole idea of understanding the truth. Do you remember what we learned that, what what that was called when when you tell somebody the The gospel or somebody reads the Bible, there's a doctrine that relates to them understanding the truth. And you remember what that is? It's called illumination. God turning on the lights. Well, this is like reverse illumination. God makes sure the switch is off and keeps it off. So that they could not perceive the truth. He turns off the switch. They heard the words, they just couldn't figure out what it was meant because it was kept from them. And this right here reveals the sovereignty of God over the situation, doesn't it? That God is in total control. Total control. Listen, if God wants you to understand something, you are going to understand something. And if he doesn't want you to understand something, that's it. You will not understand. And this whole idea of God's sovereignty and his total control over men's understanding and, and their knowledge of his word is very comforting if you understand it and apply it. Now let me just explain how. And just, just one example. You know, you, you have an opportunity to share the gospel with somebody, maybe a coworker, or or neighbor or something, and the person seems kind of interested. And, they, you know, maybe you're sitting down for lunch and they say, hey, I know you go to church. Tell me, how does somebody become a Christian? You're just thinking, whoa! There you are, right in the middle of your bologna sandwich, and the person is asking you, how how, how can how does a person become a Christian? And you just think, whoa! Your heart starts racing, your car- carotid arteries thumping. And so you start telling them, well, God is a holy God, and he must punish sin, and men are sinners. And you're quoting different verses to them, and fragments of verses. And you kind of take them through the whole process, and you're defining all the key terms. You're trying to give them good examples. You need spend, you know, an hour and a half um, trying to tell them all about the gospel and lead them to the Lord. And at the end, you think, so do you want to become a Christian? No. <laughs> and you're thinking, what was that? You know, ah. And they don't want to give their life to Christ. They don't want to follow Christ. And then what happens? Well, if you don't understand that God's sovereign over the situation, you leave and you start torching yourself in the rack of your own griefs, saying, oh, I should have said... I should have told him that other verse. I should have used that other illustration. You know, maybe I, I pressed him too hard. Maybe I didn't press him hard enough. Uh, you know, maybe I was just, maybe should go, maybe I should go back, uh, you know, and you just start double guessing and triple guessing and Oh Lord, forgive me. I know I was so shoddy. I shouldn't study my Bible more. And then, and, and the whole time you're really acting like if you would have done it right, you could have saved them, but you will never save anybody. You will never give anybody illumination. That is something the Holy Spirit does. It's your job to make sure they have the truth of the gospel in a clear, understandable way. And you know what? From testimonies, you discover bad presentations have saved a lot of people. <laughs> people have come to Christ by reading verses all by themselves and tracts when no one's around and just reading the Bible. Why? Because the power to save somebody is in the word of God. It is the more sure word. We're just the delivery boy. I use the example of dynamite. You know, this, this has got the word of God as the power, just deliver the goods. And then God, when he wants, hits the plunger. You know, somebody said the word of God is like a lion. You just let it out of the cage. It takes care of yourself itself. You know, saying now, Mr. Lion, don't let anybody beat up on you. No, the lion knows how to take care of itself. And so when you understand God's sovereignty over the situation, it just helps you relax because you realize, you know, God's going to do what he's going to do. And don't ever take upon yourself what God says is his responsibility. It's your responsibility to share the truth. It's God's responsibility to To do something with it unto salvation. God commands you to repent of your sins and place your faith in Jesus Christ. God says, if you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. That's what you do. Those commands are not directed at God. The word of God says, as many as received him to them, he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name. You now whosoever believes in him will not perish, but have eternal life. Whoever wills, you know, it just says over and over again. And those statements aren't directed to God. They're directed to us, to sinners. But see, some people start getting in their mind. Well, then, Jack, you know, hey, how do I know if I'm one of the elect? Believe and then you'll know. <laughs> yeah, but but I don't know if God has chosen me before the foundation of the world. Therefore, I don't know if I can believe. Believe and you'll be saved. And you'll know you're one of the elect. You see, the message to you are the elect is given to believers. The message to repent and believe is given to unbelievers. So don't take the message given to believers and try and apply it to unbelievers because it will only frustrate you. Just do what God says. There is this. This, what we would call, paradox between what God calls men to do and what God does. And if you take what God does and try and transpose it on what men do, it gives you a brain cramp. Look at 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 with me. This is just one of many texts we could use to illustrate this. This is similar to the text we're looking at because in this case, God is purposely blinding people from the truth. But this is 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 8 through 12. Here, Paul is addressing the time of the tribulation, and when the Antichrist comes on the scene, he is called here the man of lawlessness, or that lawless one. Verse 8, 2 Thessalonians 2. Then that lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord will slay with the breath of his mouth to bring an end. "...bring to an end by the appearance of his coming, that is the one whose coming is in accord with the activity of Satan, with all power and signs and false wonders, and with all deception of wickedness for those who perish, because they did not receive the love of the truth so as to be saved." For this reason, God will send upon them a deluding influence so that they will believe what is false. In order that they may all be judged who did not believe the truth but took pleasure in wickedness. Now, did you see that? Notice that God doesn't say they perished because I didn't elect them unto salvation. They perished, the text says, because they did not receive the love of the truth so as to be saved. They perished, the text says, because they did not believe the truth but took pleasure in wickedness. They damned themselves by their own sin. And as we learned, when people are sinful and unbelieving, God does not like to bless them. He usually curses them. We see that in his response. He sends upon them a deluding influence so that they will believe what is false and so that they might be judged. And here we see both God and men. God is calling men to repent and believe that is the message to the unbeliever. Once you believe you've been chosen before the foundation of the earth, but you try and take the message to the believer, you try and stick it on the unbeliever. It's just going to frustrate you because the Bible never does that. And if you're out there saying, well, then why witness? Why pray? If God is in charge of who gets saved and who doesn't, then why pray? Well, what you're really telling me is then the only reason I pray and the only reason I witness to people is so I can save them. Is that what you want? Well, it'll never happen. You will never save anybody. God has chosen to use the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. It's your responsibility as a Christian to live the truth Share the gospel and pray for the loss. It's God's responsibility to do something with his word. To make it living and active. To grant them repentance. To open their heart. To give them the grace and the faith they need to believe. And so here in our text, we see that God for his own purpose has now cut off the understanding for the disciples. And the question is, why? Why would he do that? that And you know what the text doesn't tell us It just tells us he did And so we accept it and say okay that's what god has decided to do Now when you when you when you come up on the sovereignty of God issue. This is such a big deal to people who want to be in control. People want to have a part in their salvation. People want to have a part in saving other people. People who want to have some credit. Yes, it's a big deal. But when you realize you're a sinner and you deserve hell and that you can do nothing to save yourself, then you're fine with God being sovereign. I mean, you, you fall over a huge ocean liner, a hundred feet into the water. If the fall doesn't kill you, by the time you get to the surface, it's gone by. If it doesn't chew you up in the turbulence of the prop. And they somebody notices that you fall off. They finally get the ship stopped two miles away and they throw over a little boat and they drive back and they fish you out of the water. And do you tell people, man, I fell off the side, but I saved myself. The ship came along and I grabbed onto the life ring. And I crawled up in my own power. And if it wasn't for me, I would have been lost. That is so absurd. But in our case, it's even worse than that because we're dead in our trespasses and sins. It's like you're dead and unconscious floating in the water and they grab you and then revive you and then bring you back to the ship. That's the picture. Now, we're fine with that. And so you keep in your mind what your responsibility and you keep let God be God and do what he's going to do. And it's very comforting and helps you not to be anxious or fret or worry. You just do what you're supposed to do and let God be God. Fourth, don't be afraid to ask for help. Look at verse 45, the very end. They were afraid to ask him about this statement. Notice, they understood Jesus was talking about his death, most likely, but they were afraid. Afraid of what? Well, probably afraid of the answer. (laughs) You know, these guys had left everything to follow Jesus. I mean, they had committed business suicide by siding with Jesus against the Jews. And here Jesus is. He's walking around the country. They've been following him for years. They they rely. They subsist off of Jesus. They've cut all ties with home and made tons of enemies. And now Jesus said, I'm going to die. Ache. That scares them. So they don't want to know the answer. But listen, people, God doesn't want you to be scared of the truth. Never be scared of the truth. Satan loves you to be scared of the truth. Satan would love you to maintain ignorance and be in the dark, not have any discernment or a clear understanding of an issue. God never wants that. You know, and sometimes the truth hurts, granted. You know, somebody sees some sin in your life, comes and rebukes you or confronts you. That's not fun. But, you know, it's good. (laughs) It's good to know that, okay, It's out now because a lot of times we're blind. It's painful to know there is a hell and that people who don't believe in Christ go there. And maybe you have a relative who has died and doesn't know the Lord. And you know what? You just don't want to think about it. You don't want to know the truth. You go to the doctor and the doctor does some tests and says, you know, I think you might have cancer. Let me do some tests. I'll let you know in a week. Next week comes, you think, I think I might wake another week or month or year before I call out for the results. You just kind of don't want to know <laughs> because you're afraid. You're afraid of the truth. But Jesus said in Luke 11, 10, for everyone who asks receives and he who seeks finds and to him who knocks, it will be opened. He said in John sixteen twenty four, 24 until Now you have asked for nothing in my name. Ask and you will receive so that your joy may be made full. There is a blessing in knowing the truth. And so you need to make it a habit not to be like the disciples here and just be afraid to ask. You know, sometimes you might be entangled in some sin and you know it's a sin, but you don't know how to get out of it. And you don't really want to bring it up because you might get the solution and you kind of like your sin. And you're afraid if I bring this up, so and so's going to tell me what I need to do, and then I'll be accountable. So I'm not going to ask. You know, if it was my birthday and my wife said, yeah, you know, I, I will be willing to make you any kind of cake you want. I said, okay, I want the Kalamazoo special. And she says, what's that? I said, I don't know. I had it one time. It was great. That's what I want. And she says, okay. Now, does she just go to the kitchen and say, I'll just throw some ingredients together. I'm sure it'll turn out okay. I'll just wing it. Well, I'll talk to other people who don't know. And I'll do what they say. No, that's not what she does. She gets out her cookbooks or gets on the internet. She finds the recipe and then makes it like she's supposed to. That gets the product out there. Well, in the same way, when you have a problem in your life, when you have a trial, when you have an issue, when you have whatever in your life and you need help, What do you do? You go talk to the people who don't know, get on the internet and look up what worldly wise man has to say. You know, a lot of people, they come to me with problems and I say, well, so what have you, what do you know about the scriptures? Well, I don't know anything. What studies have you done to try and find the solution, the recipe to your problem? I haven't done any, man. That is the first place you go. Go to the Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. Go to the Word and get the answers, the recipe to your problem. That's where it is. It's in the book, which gives us everything pertaining to life and godliness. And somebody says, well, Jack, I, listen, I'm not really a Bible thumper. You need to be. You know, just a faithful reading of the Bible will fix more problems you didn't even know you ever had. I mean, you just read the Bible, it shows you your problem and then fixes you of them. But let's just say, okay, so you haven't been reading your Bible. You don't know the book that well. You don't really know what to do and you don't know what to look, where to look. So what do you do? Go ask unbelievers? Go look on the internet? No. You go to somebody who can show you how to use the cookbook. Any elder, any pastor, any mature believer can show you how to say, you know, there's the book of topical index back here. Let me just show you how that works. It's a non-inspired book, but it's very helpful (laughs) because it takes you back to the expired book and it's got categories here. There are so many resources out there to help you get biblical solutions to your problems. That's where you need to go first. Ask and you will receive. God isn't going to know, well, this person's really searching hard for answers of my word, but I'm not going to show them. I mean, you heard Brody's sermon, right? If you seek for it as hidden treasure and search for it as gold, then you will discern the knowledge of God. And then it goes on and it talks about how God's word guards you, how it preserves you, how it protects you, how it brings pleasure to your soul. But first you have to seek, incline your ear, cry out for understanding. You have to do all those eight things at the beginning of the chapter so you can get to the goods. But just saying, well, I, I don't want to ask. I, that's just pride. That's just pride. Get the answers. And they'll bless your soul. You'll have full joy then. Okay. Miracle of God. We finished the section. Don't be unbelieving. Don't be unbelieving. Don't seek miracles without understanding. Don't be hard hearted to the truth. Don't be afraid to ask questions. Because these things will hinder your walk with the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we thank you. We are so grateful for this section. What great truths are here. Way, way deep with truth. Father, we are so blessed to know you, to know that you are a God who is in control, that you are sovereign and we rejoice that our names are written in the book of life. Father, that we have every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, that you became a man in the person of your son, And Father, Jesus died on the cross after living a perfect life and gave himself to be our substitute, that through faith in him we might receive the free gift of eternal life. That is the big deal, to believe upon you and be saved. Father, I just pray that that if there's anybody here who hasn't done that right now and that their own heart, as they have their heads bowed, they would cry out to you. They would confess their sins. They would admit their sinner, that they would admit that they need salvation and father, that they would seek you with their whole heart, that they would believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, that he is who he said he is the son of man and the son of God who lived that perfect life, died and rose again. And then in believing in that they would receive the free gift of eternal life and that you would change them And they would have the present. They would have the park. They would have the money. They would have you. And Father, we just pray that you would cause that to happen. And Father, help us to be faithful, to live your truth and share your truth with others, knowing that you are pleased to use us to bring others to you. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.